Welcome to Florida. That is the voice of New York Times best-selling author and award-winning environmental reporter Craig Pittman. My name is Chad Scott, and this is Welcome to Florida. Recently, Craig, you wrote in the Florida Phoenix, floridaphoenix.com, a vote for Ron DeSantis is a vote for hurricanes. What do you mean by that? Well, not for hurricanes, but for Hurricane Ian, more hurric- more more stronger hurricanes, more hurricanes that rapidly intensify because in a warming world, which, of course, is the one we live in, um, you know, Gulf of Mexico water is warmer. Hurricanes rapidly intensify. Uh, Ian, for instance, started mm-hmm. off Monday as a category one. It was a category four and nearly a five when it hit Florida on Wednesday. So but our governor is uh, he's willing to armor the coast and call it resilience, but he's not willing to do what he calls left-wing stuff to try and wean the state off fossil fuels or, you know, anything like that. So yeah. that's, uh, you know, he's he's just, he's in that sort of climate denier mindset. He, he's even afraid to say the words climate change. Yeah, he, he is as uh, climate denial as you will find in 2022. And he is of this thinking that if you pretty much just put blinders up, that's the hear no evil, speak no evil, see no evil, and it'll just go away and we can we can build our way out of this seawalls and dikes and levees and uh, pumping stations and drainage. And instead of giving any attention whatsoever to trying to uh, stem this off at the source and reduce the amount of uh, carbon pollution we're emitting, he is on the uh, on the developer side of we'll just build our way out of this. Yeah, pretty much. Well, and, and there are two problems with that. One is you're making the taxpayers pay for bad builder decisions to build mm-hmm. in low-lying coastal areas. But number two, um, you know, the the problem with resilience, with focusing only on resilience, is that you have to keep doing it over and over and over again. You know, the yeah. sea level keeps getting higher. You got to build your seawalls higher. You got to raise the roads even more. So all the millions of dollars we're spending <laughs> now, we're going to spend it all over again. And and it's a narrow perspective of resilience his Mm -hmm. resilience is all concrete and asphalt it's not about not building anymore it's not about moving homes away from coastal areas it's not about uh rebuilding dunes and seagrass beds and mangroves which we're going to get into in this episode it's not about natural green solutions it's about how can i continue to pay huge dollars out of the state coffers to developers contractors road builders and put up more concrete and asphalt in this state when time and time again and we'll hear this from our guest the best way to mitigate storm surge is through natural solutions, not more right. concrete. Right. Well, and and the other thing, too, is it doesn't do anything about the other impacts of climate change. Mm-hmm. You know, the, the, the heat is rising. It's hot even at night now. People have to work outdoors. I feel so bad for those folks. Uh, yeah. It's just it's just brutal. And, you know, the, the hurricane has brought in some cooler weather temporarily, but we're going to go right back to hot days and and heavier rainfall pretty mm-hmm. soon. Mm-hmm. And these are not realities that uh, the governor wants to deal with. You can read in uh, the Florida Phoenix, Craig's uh, commentary there about how a uh, vote for Ron DeSantis is a vote for more more Hurricane Ian's. And we want to uh, thank windstormproducts.com for sponsoring the podcast. Speaking this of hurricanes. Is, <laughs> this is human nature, right? You know, everyone. Yeah. Oh, man, what was that thing on the welcome to Florida again? <laughs> so you go back and with, yeah, you were too late. And hey, 
none of this stuff, you know, if you're in Fort Myers Beach or Sanibel is going to help uh, a lot. I mean, from the the most devastating, you know, if your roof blows off, uh, there's nothing you can do about that. But where I am in Fernandina Beach, certainly where where Craig is in St. Pete, uh, the impacts of of Hurricane Ian on your home or business would have been dramatically different if you had uh, used our friends with Windstorm Products, the largest online retailer of Hurricane Hardware. But the one that I'm finally seeing more and more people use, and, and it's it's those quick dam water-activated flood barriers. I was oh, yeah. walking out in my neighborhood and, and saw people with the sandbags. And I'm thinking, this person drove all the way to like the municipal dump where there's a giant <laughs> pile of sand in the rain, blowing wind, filled up these bags, Stood in line for an hour. Probably. Yeah, sat in the yep. car in line for an hour, got all wet, got all filthy, car got wet, car got filthy, then came back home, set this stuff up. I can promise you, I've filled up sandbags. It is a, a arduous, sweaty, dirty, long process. And then you're left with all these sandbags. Right, right. next door in one of these condo complexes, someone had the uh, quick dam water activated flood barriers, which you receive in the mail, you open you lay down in front of your property and then you let them fill up with water while you go back inside and watch the NFL games. And then when they fill up with water, you poke a hole in them and discard them. Or if you don't end up using them, you just save them for the next time. I'm going to put a link to these in the, in the show notes, folks. Again, a 12 foot storm surge, nothing's, you know, nothing's going to help. But if you've got that, that sunny day flooding or, you know, you know, constant, you know, water inundation in your, garage or in your basement or you know if you're in a a low-lying area and you're always worried about the next storm you know getting water creeping into your house quick damn water activated flood barriers check it out in the show notes and with our friends at windstormproducts.com going to change your life okay our guest today samantha chapman professor of biology at villanova hey now that's in philadelphia craig What, what are we doing talking to someone from Villanova today. Well, uh, she seems like the perfect person to talk to us about mangroves because she's been studying Florida mangroves for years. And in fact, I quoted her in a column back in 2020 talking about how the mangroves are adapting to climate change in Mm -hmm. Florida, whereas we're not doing so great. So that's why I figured she's a good expert to talk to about the role of mangroves yeah. in saving our coast and saving us. I, I remember that column well and, and mention it to people all the time because mangroves are a South Florida uh, native plant that is actually moving north because the weather yeah. is, is warming, moving north where they're not supposed to be. So it's the rare, almost native invasive plant. <laughs> yes. And that's what we're going to talk about. And like we mentioned, uh, mangroves ability to mitigate storm surge and hurricane impacts. Samantha Chapman is our guest. A quick note on the audio quality of this interview. About halfway through, we experienced some technical difficulties with a fuzz or a buzz on the line. That was only for a couple of minutes. We recorded this interview as Hurricane Ian had passed by St. Pete, but was still coming up the coast and affecting me in Fernandina Beach. So all of our Zoom connections were a little staticky for a moment, but bear with us and it gets better towards the end when we reconfigure our connection. How does a professor Villanova wind up studying mangroves in Florida? (laughs) It's a great question. So I was lucky enough... um, through some internet sleuthing to come upon the research of my, really my mentor and kind of the godmother, I would say, of mangrove research, um, Candy Feller, who is a Smithsonian at the science, or scientist at Smithsonian. Um, And I still was just 
in the Keys with her two weeks ago working oh, on boy. these things. Um, so yeah, I was lucky enough to meet her and I ended up doing a little stint during graduate school where I went and hung out with her in Florida and your lovely Florida and um, did some research at Smithsonian Marine Station. And then she took me all around the world to see mangroves and we still collaborate to this day. So yeah, I just uh, had a good trainer. That's all. <laughs> what is it about Florida mangroves that you, you find so fascinating? Yeah, as you may know from being in them, probably better than I, um, you first get in there and you're sort of like, why am I in this crazy place, right? You can't <laughs> see two feet in front of your face and you're sinking in mud up to your thighs. Um, there could be any sort of animal right around the corner, but, you know, they're- You make fast. it sound so attractive. <laughs> <laughs> I know, I'm still doing it years later, right? Um, no, I think- fascinating right that these trees i've always been a tree lover hugger but can like be perched in the water right with their feet in the water and deal with massive storm surges as salt water and all these things that trees aren't really supposed to be able to deal with and they can and so i just think they're totally fascinating now, now there's more than one type of mangrove right that's right in um the neo tropics so here we have three species right so in florida you have the black mangrove, the white mangrove, and the red mangrove, as they're commonly called, or they're, they're three different species. Yeah, have scientific names. If you want, I can tell you them. But are <laughs> <laughs> different? Yeah. Yeah. So um, they're different in the way that oftentimes they're positioned along the coast. So oftentimes in Florida, you find the reds right along the edge, right along the water, with their big prop roots. You know, look like jungle gyms. You go through in a little mm -hmm. kayak, right, and you see them really beautifully hanging over the water. Black mangroves have those cool little, what are called pneumatophores or like little snorkels that stick up from the ground that help them breathe in flooded water. And white mangroves are sort of in between, they, they're kind of like more like orchard trees, right? They look more like tree trees than black and red mangroves do. So they're different in that way. They're also different in lots of other things like Black mangroves are the ones that can tolerate freezing the best, and that's why they're the ones that we're studying that are most often moving further north and are now kind of perched right on the edge with Georgia about to potentially, with this hurricane, spread up into, into that area of the U.S. Well, let, me ask well. You, let me ask you about that. So mangroves used to be a sort of a strictly Florida phenomenon, but they're, they're moving? Yeah, so there's some really good work that's been done recently by my colleague Candy and some other people looking at the historical range of mangroves in the U.S. and Florida, and they actually were up pretty far north in Florida back in the 1800s. Um, so John Muir and Bartram and other people actually looked at them um, back then. But then because mangroves can't tolerate deep freezes, so like a couple nights in a row with really strong freezes, um, they were killed back. And then they would sort of come back again, and they'd kill, be killed back again. And there's really good records in Florida, as you can imagine, on freeze events because of the citrus industry. Sure. And so um, it's cool that we have these really good records of freezes as well as some, you know, na naturalist observations of where mangroves were traditionally. Mangroves are now, um, as I said, the most northern mangrove that we found um, is right up on the edge of the border with Georgia. Um, and that's kind of where the historical range are. But there are many more of them now than there were, let's say, in the 80s. 
um, for sure. They're Mm -hmm. moving up into areas and they're not even just moving into further north and they're also like spreading out, right? So they kind of take over the salt marsh that they're displacing. And this isn't just a U.S. thing that's happening in New Zealand. I've seen it. It's happening in um, China. It's happening in various parts of the world. It's because of lack of freeze events. These mangroves can now live in these other zones. They could also do this because the sea levels are higher and they get kind of like in Australia, they get carried higher up on the coast. All kinds of ways that people are sort of letting this climate adaptation by plants happen, which is interesting. Yeah. I live right on the Florida Georgia border. I'm in Fernandina Beach, so I'm sure that's uh, what you're talking about. And and again, to me, to to see a mangrove here would, would be so incongruous it's like what is that thing doing here you know that that should be you know in in vero or someplace not here uh what you know it it would seem like well maybe this is a a good thing you know it's a it's a native plant it's a barrier against storm surge but you talked about mangroves going into salt marshes where they're not supposed to be and that's where uh we run into trouble i think Yeah, Chad, I think, you know, this is really one of the main goals of of my research program is to figure out, you know, what does this mean? And of course, as you're saying, like, these species are pretty adaptive and plastic, and they can be in lots of different kinds of places. And I tend to think about this as the earth um, plants in particular finding a way to adapt to climate change. So I think we can learn a lot from it. I don't necessarily think it's a good or like, you know, one good thing is that we know mangroves are better at absorbing storm surges than marshes are. Right. So we've seen this and that you need less mangroves than you do of marsh to take down a big wave. Right. So that's one good thing. Um, obviously, the the animals that associate with these plants are different, although it's been shown that some of the birds and other things and fish that do well in marshes can also do well in mangroves. But as you say, you know, there's a big part of this that's like we're not used to seeing mangroves all along the vast you know, coast, it's gorgeous area of where you live um, by Fernandina Beach. It's just different, right? And so, you know, what what does that do to people's perspective on that and their aesthetics of what their coastlines look like? So I think that there are some good things about this climate adaptation, but there's also some things like, what if all the mangroves take over and then there's mm-hmm. a deep freeze, right? Then what? So what we start to think about it now is it's kind of like this more diverse place where you have both marshes and mangroves and they're kind of like, shifting back and forth a bit and if you have both of them then maybe that's the best case scenario yeah yeah and it would be one thing if these adaptations were the result of some sort of natural phenomenon i guess you know obviously climate change is a natural phenomenon but is a man-made natural phenomenon so that's right. where you you where i sort of run into trouble thinking yeah i mean it, it's 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 the old jeff goldblum life finds a way kind of thing right okay great and these are native plants and i'm in the native plant right. society and trees and all okay that's great at the same time they're being forced forced not the word but they're taking advantage of man-made conditions to uh go where they haven't been previously yeah, I think that's true. I mean, there is no, it's like watching climate change happen. And what yeah. I would say in my state and your state and all these places, we're like trying to resist climate change. And I guess I would say like we have to find ways to adapt to climate change because mm-hmm. it's here and rising sea levels. Even if, you know, these great new bills we have are going to help us with emissions reduction and natural climate change solutions. But I would say that a lot of the sea level rise is already baked into the system, as you both know. Totally. Like, yeah. Well, and I think, yeah, we're all, you know, the three of us are of an age where when climate change started to begin, when it was global warming, you know, right? right. And then that became non-politically correct and, and, a, and a culture war buzzword. It, it was such an opaque, 
50 years off, 2050. We, like you mentioned now, Samantha, climate change is occurring in real time, whether it's the hurricanes. Uh, and again, you're not going to watch a mangrove grow in real time. But in, in, in the context of natural adaptation, something you see over your lifetime is essentially real time. Well, yep. And how fast, how quickly have they colonized this far north? So I'll just give you an example, like at Kennedy Space Center, they increased by, you know, 70% in abundance in just like a decade, right? And that's not like moving miles north, that's just like filling in, mm -hmm. right, in that area. And again, they were there before, um, and they got killed back, but they're moving really fast. But the thing that spreads them the best is high water events and hurricanes. And so it's very interesting. Irma. So, so the more hurricanes we have that bring big storm surges, the, the farther yeah. north. Yeah, and one thing spread. we just saw two weeks ago, and this is no accident, right? Mangroves have evolved to do this, that they're dropping their propagules, right? Which are like little alive little trees that are kind of like seeds, but not exactly. But right now that's where, when they're dropping and they're dropping them during hurricane season and during high water events and king tides and things like that. And that's when they tend to to end up spreading, right? Because yeah. they're carried by high water, as you said, Craig. And that, yeah, that could be, you know, a hundred miles. You know, you think of a little seed pod on, exactly. a, on, a, on a hurricane, you know, <laughs> water, that could go... Yeah, this, there's actually a really cool study where they found that some of the populations in Northeast Florida, where I do most of my work, were actually came from the West Coast, and the, and like they're genetically similar to them. They they're most similar to them, so they must come all the way. So, so what was it? Well, did the water carry them, or were they carried by the wind then? Yeah, the water carries them, right? So the meg red mangroves, you've probably seen them, right? Those big, long propagules. The black ones are like smaller and more round. And so they get carried along on currents. Actually, sort of, they get carried in the sargassum, um, some of the seagrass and things like that as they move in the like big currents. And then high water events and storm surges sort of pushes them inland and they can get up and into the marsh um, on these, you know, king tides and surges and things yeah, like that. Yeah. Yeah. So what are some things that people don't know about mangroves I, and i'm thinking in particular what would you say to the folks who are all constantly saying we have to cut the mangroves back so we can so we can have our water view <laughs> yeah, I, I know i hear you and you know i do love this about florida that you know and i was looking this up this morning because i wanted to make sure i got it right but like florida does have really strict regulations uh, of dealing with mangroves. Now, as you said, you can trim them because you want your water view and you have to hire someone. But like compared to other places I've been, like New Zealand, you know, they have these mangroves made and they just want them out of there and they just cut them down, right? They just take Yikes. them out. Really? Um, yeah. So what I would say is that the coolest thing to me, and this is something I can't stop studying, even though I'm kind of beating it over and over again, but is the ability of these systems to literally like keep up with sea level rise, right? They like build land. So they, and there's lots of ways they do this, but like along the coast um, in the Northeast where I work, they essentially grow roots and they trap sediment. And in doing so over time, that stuff doesn't decompose because there's no oxygen or little oxygen getting into it. And so it just builds land over and over and over. And we can watch through these measurements that we do how much land they build. And so one of the things we're trying to figure out is like, how does a marsh versus a mangrove? Because marshes do this too, build land. And it seems like mangroves tend to build land um, potentially in one of our studies, you know, faster than marshes do. So maybe that helps Florida and these places with 
keep up with I'm, sea level rise. I'm not. Yeah. I'm not sure the property owners on the beach are going to like that though. They're like, wait, wait. You mean you're pushing the way you're pushing the water further out? <laughs> <laughs> this is land that I don't know. <laughs> but and and well, you know, there's they're so well anchored and and deeply anchored <laughs> as as trees are. I know a lot of. Um, I shouldn't say a lot, but I, I think it's becoming more prevalent to see mangroves and green infrastructure, seagrass and, and dune restorations being used as a sea level rise and flooding mitigator, as as opposed to just more concrete and, and seawalls. And, and, you know, mangroves may block your view, but uh, they're, they're a damn sight more uh, attractive than a five foot concrete wall uh, along the, the, the ocean front. Yeah. They're, they're, what are they called? Living coastlines? Is that the, yeah, the term of art these days? Yep. Yeah. Oyster reefs and yeah. mangroves mm-hmm. and marshes. Yeah, you're totally right. And these green barriers, like they've been working for us for long periods of time, right? In some ways, the developing world caught on to this faster than we did. Like after the Asian tsunami, where like people that lived behind mangroves lived and people that where their mangroves oh. have been here because of shrimp farming or whatever died. So that, you know, India and other places are like, you know, years ago now, are like, we got to restore all these mangroves. Yeah, that's a pretty clear study. Yeah. Yeah. So well, it, yeah, if, if we want to go back in time, I think the greatest failure of Hurricane Katrina was the failure to recognize this, the failure to recognize that, look, we've got a chance here to turn the entire Gulf Coast essentially into a resilient living coastline. And the Bush administration just utterly failed to do any of that work of that administration's failures. And there are countless. That was one that was so obvious. And what you realize, too, with these living seashores, Obviously, they're they're much better for all the other animals. You know, what is a manatee going to do with a, a, a levy? Nothing. But with a mangrove, absolutely. And when you look at the cost, much cheaper uh, way to go about this than than bringing in all the bulldozers and the cement mixers and and trying to to build walls. But there's a there's a, a party, a political party in this country that loves building walls, and, and it is extended to to the ocean and the Gulf. That's a great point. All that BP money, right? Yeah. Has some of it now starting to go into that stuff, Chad, but I totally agree with you. Like, and it's good for fishing and your economies mm-hmm. that you have baby fish live in the marshes and live in the mangroves and then they go out to the ocean, right? So Yeah. Yeah. Uh, what are what are some of the what are some of the uh what are some of the animals that uh that take shelter in the mangroves and use them as nurseries and so forth. Yeah, I mean, t- the small fish are hu- a huge one, right? They literally are like the nurseries of the sea. All the baby fish, like it, when they're born, many hide inside the mangrove roots and because they're you know less likely to get eaten by big fish or bird predators or whatever. Mm-hmm. And so then after they grow up, they often go out into the ocean. So mangroves have are known to be incredibly important for fisheries yeah they're really really important for that but yeah other cool animals you know we see definitely see crazy snakes and beautiful spiders yeah amazing birds of course like you have them crustaceans too i would imagine right yeah look cool sponges on the roots the mangrove tree crab is adorable they're cannibalistic but they're really really cute (laughs) wait wait a minute ballistic what do you mean have you you had a bad encounter with one They're very small, luckily. But um, no, they're really crazy because they eat, they're omnivores. They'll eat like leaves and they'll eat each other, each other's babies. They eat anything. And they're just like, you go into Omega and they just like scatter everywhere. Right. They're all, they're really cool. So we've talked a lot about the Atlantic coast and mangroves there. What's going on on the Gulf Coast? Are the mangroves moving northward there as well? 
the mangroves are moving northward there as well. And they've been, um, there's some recent people that have been working in near um, Mexico Beach, where there was also another hurricane. They're also moving Michael. into mm-hmm. Gulf, Gulf, yeah, Michael, exactly. Gulf Coast marshes um, in Texas, like Port Aransas. And there was a deep freeze there this past winter that killed off a bunch of those mangroves. They're tending to recolonize in some sites, but not other sites. And so it's a really interesting situation, kind of testing the situation of like, you know, what happens if the mangroves all move in and then it freezes. So there's, I'm really watching those results to see what happens. We're, ta- we're talking about mangroves migrating naturally, but what about cultivation? Is it an easy treat to grow like in South Florida or, or the Keys or someplace if they wanted to do uh, you know, a living shoreline and incorporate mangroves. Do you plant that like a sapling, like it's a an elm tree, or you know, how do, how does that work? Yeah, you know, Chad, it's just like those. Um, we were talking about those floating seeds, those propagules. Mm-hmm. They are really easy to plant because the plants already germinated essentially, and so as long as you get the tidal regime right and the hydrological flushing, like the flushing of water into and out of the system, they can grow really well. So you have to mm-hmm. plant them at the right elevation. You can't do it on like a mud flat, which is like a natural mud flat, which has been done in a lot of places and failed, you know, mangrove restoration has happened because of that. But there was actually some um, studies that show that Florida has some of the best area to restore for mangroves in the world. Um, and if you do that, you know, maybe like something like 200 square kilometers or something, if you do that, you get, you know, all the benefits of these green barriers to protect people in inland, also all the fishing benefits, and you get a ton of carbon scrubbed out of the atmosphere by these ecosystems. So it's really a win-win for these um, in areas where mangroves are naturally growing to, you know, restore them. Yeah, we hadn't even, I, I hadn't even thought about that, uh, talking about how they, like any other tree, will filter the air for carbon dioxide. So again, unlike your seawall that does nothing to uh, help uh, climate change and in fact exacerbates it because uh, concrete production is such a a major factor in carbon dioxide pollution. The trees are, you know, this is a, a, it's not carbon neutral, it's carbon negative. And, you know, in these mangrove uh, ecological communities, are there typically other uh, plant species? We, we talked about the, the fish and the crabs and the spiders and snakes and that kind of thing, but any other uh, hanger on or plant species that, that tend to find their way into, into these mangrove forests? Yeah, there's all kinds of really cool bromeliads, right, that grow Ooh. in mangroves, plants that, yeah, I know, mm-hmm. plants that kind of grow up in the mangroves themselves. And in some of the really deep tropical mangroves, you can find a lot of that. Really, there, yeah, there's other little species of plants that can kind of grow amongst the mangroves, little succulent things. Um, so, yeah, there's lots of diversity in these systems, even though people think of them kind of like, you know, backwater swamps. They're really amazing in terms of their biodiversity. Um, and the blue carbon piece, like that's what's being called, is like blue carbon, right? Any carbon that is coming, that's being sucked up like in oceanic ecosystems, like mangroves and seagrasses. Um, is huge. They actually, mangroves do this better, take carbon out of the atmosphere five times better than terrestrial forests like we have here in wow. Pennsylvania. So they do a really good job of it. Yep. Why it's is that? Amazing. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So it's the same reason that they're good at building land. Like you can kind of think about that land that they're building underneath them as a bunch of carbon. It just gets locked away, right? Mm-hmm. In the soil. And it doesn't come back out, whereas like a forest, like a deciduous forest here in Pennsylvania, that carbon's always being respired from the roots. In mangroves, that carbon is building up and up over time in the soil. 
And in doing so, it's just sitting there for thousands of years. And like, you know, Belize and Panama, you can find these mangrove peat things that go down for thousands of years. It's just carbon locked away. It's really amazing. Wow. So if people uproot the uproot the mangroves, does that release the carbon back into the atmosphere again? Sure does. Yep. Especially Ooh. if you don't have it being put back in, right? And you're, you know, obviously when you drain anything, you put oxygen into that, right? Because the water's not there anymore. And then that oxidizes all that carbon. It blows off into the atmosphere. So, you know, estimates that we've lost 50% of mangroves um, that were once around, you know, it's a faster rate of deforestation or it was in the past in tropical rainforest. Um, shows that we've lost a lot of carbon from these ecosystems already. Yeah. Is that 50% figure, is that globally or here in Florida? And what would it be That's in Florida? globally. Yeah. yeah, you know, that is a good question. So, I mean, I know that mangroves started to be protected in Florida, you know, kind of in the 80s, but like the 50s and 60s, right, where you were places like um, Coral Gables and other places mm-hmm. where were essentially wetlands, right, that were mm-hmm. drained and filled there was a lot of mangrove loss. And I think that's where that number comes in, that there's a lot of mangroves that could be restored, not necessarily where people are living right now, right? But in other places, because they've been lost. And even in places like Marco Island, you could plant mangroves. Like there's this cool study you could, if you restored like flushing, you know, the tidal flushing of kind of right along the edges of where the neighborhoods are, you could get mangroves back in those areas. You just need the right conditions. And that would be very helpful, as you can imagine, for those people with dealing with coastal protection. Yeah. And I guess this is just my, you know, sort of narrow mindedness. I think of mangroves as a coastal species, but I, I do not think of them inland wetland, but, you know, obviously mangroves anywhere it's it's wet, I would imagine, you know, swampy no, and sustained wet, but oh, and, only and salt, salt water. water. So they grow in freshwater too really well. And I know this because we grow them in the greenhouse here sometimes in freshwater. And they do really well along the Amazon. They do really well, places like that. One thing that's happening in Florida too is in the Everglades, as the sea levels are coming up and there's more salt water getting into the Everglades, the mangroves can then outcompete some of the freshwater plants and are moving up into those areas as well. So they're kind of like migrating up the river of grass, so to speak. You've you've visited mangroves all over uh, the East Coast, at least. What's your favorite place to go uh, canoeing or, or kayaking among the mangroves? Where would you send yeah. people who wanted a good mangrove experience? Uh, I would say, actually, one of the coolest places is Rookery Bay, um, which is on the West Coast, and mm-hmm. that's a National Estuarine Research Reserve. So they have some amazing mangroves there that were saved pretty much right after Marco Island was built. A bunch of scientists were like, you know, these mangroves are really important for the fish that we have in these waterways. We need to do something about this. And so um, those are some really gorgeous mangroves. You can get up in there, like you say, in a kayak and kind of kayak around. I, do, I was just in the mangroves in the Keys. And those are totally different, right? Some of them are really small, but they're hundreds of years, a hundred years old or so, because there's no nutrients and they're growing on like old coral, right? Yeah, so yeah, um, well. those are really beautiful places to go to. Samantha Chapman, professor of biology at Villanova and a mangrove researcher here in Florida. Thank you for your time and sharing your uh, wisdom about uh, this fascinating tree with us today. For sure. Thanks so much for having me. I really enjoy all of your work and been following it closely. Thank you.
Thank you. And th- thanks again. This has been a great conversation. We appreciate it. Yep. Tell the crabs we I said hello. <laughs> Will do. <laughs> I'll have to keep an eye out, Craig, for that uh, mangrove here by me in Fernandina Beach. And then what a yeah. strange <laughs> sight that would be uh, for, for me to see. And, and again, this sort of speaks to this Franken landscape we have here in Florida because of human interventions, whether that's invasive species or whether it's development or whether now, you know, climate change. It's a real uh, jigsaw puzzle with a lot of yeah. pieces removed and a lot of pieces in the puzzle that, that are not supposed to be in this puzzle. Well, I'm glad you asked about planting them because uh, I read a story, I think it was in the Fort Myers News Press recently, about uh, a set of twins who were running a, a nursery and are actually growing mangroves that then they're, they're taking out to replant in areas where they had been removed. And they're doing this specifically to to try and combat climate change. Love their, that. Yeah. Their and, small and contribution. To, sure. To and I know that the Nature Conservancy has programs in South Florida on the Atlantic side, planting mm-hmm. mangroves as living shoreline. And, you know, even uh, little Fernandina Beach here talking about what to do with our, our marina area, you know, living shorelines. I'm, I'm glad you, you brought that up because, I, again, and this circles us back to the to the start of the podcast. And that's where we're at, you know, concrete, asphalt. That's how we got ourselves into this damn problem. You know, we need to figure out how to use nature like mangroves and oyster beds and seagrass beds to combat the, uh, the, the, mistakes the we've made. <laughs> fury of nature that we've unleashed upon us. Yeah, exactly. Welcome, Welcome to, to Florida. Florida.